Hey guys, today we're going to talk about concepts as objective from chapter four of Leonard Peikoff's Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. Stay tuned. All right, let's kick off our discussion of objectivity with the introductory material and first section of chapter four. So summarizing what Leonard covers, so in the introductory section, basically Leonard makes the point that epistemology is, is a, there to provide us guidance for how to achieve knowledge, and that from objectivism's perspective, there's really one guiding piece of advice, which is just the facts, ma'am, citing Dragnet. And that's great, but the big question is, well, how do you go by just the facts? What do you actually have to do? And here the objectivist answer is going to be, you have to be objective. But understanding what object objectivity is and how to do it, we need to start by looking at the whole area where this issue arises, and that is at the conceptual level. So from objectivism's perspective, we reject the kind of platonic idea and the idea other thinkers have had where abstractions exist out there in reality, that there's you know universals or universal essences or universal characteristics, and that in effect what we do at the conceptual level is pretty much what we do at the perceptual level. Should we just look out and perceive them or we look out and get some kind of you know revelation of them? That concepts from the objectivist perspective are a human uh, way of looking at things. It's an active volitional process of regarding things as units. But that we can't, um, just as we can't impose the inner on the outer, we can't cut off the inner from the outer. That is, that it is our way of regarding actual facts, the facts that entities, existence, share characteristics in different measurement, that we're omitting measurements. It's a human way of grasping reality, but we can do that because there's certain actual facts about the relationships among that which exi exists, their commensurability, that we are uh, able to do that and maintain contact with reality. Then we get ex an example of this phenomenon uh, through the issue of definitions and specifically essences and the role that essentials play in definition. So as we've talked about before, to define something, we're identifying the fundamental characteristic or characteristics that distinguish a group from everything else in existence. And that to, to do this, we have to actually look at the relationships among the characteristics we know and say, within our context of knowledge, this is the characteristic that uh, most sets it apart that explains as many of the distinguishing characteristics that this class of existence have as possible. And so notice that there's a contribution from reality. We're looking at facts, facts about the units, and there's a contribution from consciousness. It's our context of knowledge that's going to determine what the essential is, what is dis most distinguishing of the characteristics we know at a given time uh, about the units. Then we turn to implications for when and when not to form concepts. So there's some cases where forming concepts is mandatory. Whenever there's something that we have to deal with in an everyday way, phone, computer, man, dog, anything that we want to isolate for thinking, for further study, all of that has to be conceptualized. Then there's cases where it is completely improper to conceptualize. And Leonard really talks about two kinds of cases. So one, you could think about like inappropriate expansion, that is uniting things based on non-essential similarity. So that would be, he gives the example of encircleus, 
um, we've talked about the example of greenies, not the color green, but objects that are green. Uniting them into a concept based on something like this isn't going to achieve any proper, uh, any. it's not going to achieve anything for us because there's not really um, anything that you'll learn about like a green uh, frog that's going to be applicable to a green ball or to, you know, a green sweater. And so then there's inappropriate narrowings. And so this is, Ayn Rand gives the example of, I forget the exact things, but it's like, you know, female blondes who are five foot two or something like that. And the point is this, this is an inappropriate narrowing because there's nothing distinctive about those blondes that wouldn't apply to blondes who are five inches taller, or two inches shorter or something like that and brunettes and everything. So we, um, that, those are completely off the table. Then there's some cases that are optional and you can think about sort of different shades of emotion, right? So we need the concept anger, which is one of the basic emotions. But then, you know, you have everything from, what would it be, like sullen, irked, grim, furious, cranky. Like uh, you you have just a every kind of shade of meaning that you could come up with. And some of those yeah, it's t totally legitimate to conceptualize, but others, if you just um, use descriptive phrases or something, and this is why different languages, you know, will, will have a concept for something that you have to kind of describe in a sentence or a paragraph in other languages. And then Leonard finishes by talking about borderline cases. And the example he uses is, all oh, right, we have, you know, we define a table as, I forget what it is, you know, fl flat level surface with uh, supports that are intended to hold you know, smaller objects. And the idea of you have a table hanging from the ceiling uh, with a chain, do you, does that qualify as a table? And here in these kind of borderline cases, what you have is you have options. That is, there's enough differences that you could give it its own concept, you know, a hangle, uh, a hagel, hey, I can't even say that. So maybe that's a lousy one, right? But then um, you could subsume it under the old concept and it just becomes under table and then you have a contextual redefinition of table so that you don't have that the supports are you know grounded uh, on the floor but it can include supports either hanging or rising from the floor um, or you can not do either of those and just treat it as okay it's, we're going to call it a hanging table which is what uh, we did using this example because it's just not too important it's you know it's not a major facet of life so that's sort of what Leonard covers and now let's delve into a couple items in more depth so there's two issues that I want to bring out in this video so the first is integrating this idea of concepts as objective with the principle that consciousness has identity and then second I want to talk about two particular kinds of illegitimate concepts package deals and anti-concepts so let's start with this idea of the way in which this view of objectivity is related to Ayn Rand's idea that consciousness has identity. And I want to start with a certain parallel to perception. So if you remember um, our discussion of perception, you had the naive realist who said that, look, if perception is to be valid, it must be like a mirror. What, what we uh, perceive needs to look like what the objects out there really look like. They need to match, they need to mirror. And the naive realist said, well, they do. And then you had the representationalists who come along and said, well, no, they ought, the skeptics too, but they come along and say, well, no, they ought, they actually don't. That, the, that things out there don't look like uh, to us what they actually look like. 
And remember what Ayn Rand did. She came along and said, no, that's completely wrong, is that what you have to have is there is a contribution from consciousness, but it's just the form of awareness. We're, we're aware of the object in a form and that you can't even talk about, like, does the thing really look like what it looks like? Um, but that there's a contribution of consciousness, but it's not a distortion. And it's a mistake to say that the standard is um, that our means of knowing things has to match or mirror what's external. And so this is Ayn Rand's view that consciousness has identity. It is a process of awareness and it contributes something to that process, but that's not a distortion. It's the precondition of awareness, that awareness has to happen somehow, but that it is awareness. And so now when we turn to the issue of concepts, we're going to see how that same mistake plays out. So the realists, going back to Plato, said that for universals or concepts or abstractions to be valid, they must refer to something in reality. But you really need to underline what they mean by this, that for an abstraction to be valid, it doesn't just have to match facts of reality. There has to be abstractions in reality. And that's why Plato goes and puts them in another dimension because they're obviously not here on Earth. And then Aristotle, at least as he's interpreted and as his followers took it, it's that, no, what there are, there's abstract essences, but they only exist in individual entities. But there is this universal out there in the world apart from man, and that's what we're, we're perceiving when we form a concept. Um, and then, you know, you can have, I think, the more Lockean ideas, I understand, which is that you have kind of universal characteristics or attributes that you're that are out there that you're grasping. But all of them agreed with this basic point that if our if abstractions are to be grounded in reality, if they're to be something other than a fantasy, they must refer to external objects, they must mirror them. And in effect, what we'll see when we talk about what Ayn Rand called intrinsicism is that what it's really doing is it's taking what is internal and making it external. It's externalizing our means of awareness. And then you had the nominalists who came and said, yeah, that is what um, would have to be true if abstractions were to be factual, if they were to be grounded in reality. But they're not. There are no universals out there in the world. There are no universal essences or universal characteristics. Everything is individual, particular, and that conceptualizing is something um, we're doing. There's mental activity going on, and and so what we we don't have awareness of facts. Our concepts aren't grounded in reality. They're not referring to anything um, out there. They're subjective. So Ayn Rand's answer to this is going to be our concepts do refer to something external, not to external objects, not to abstractions or universals that exist out there in the world apart from man, but to certain facts, facts that are we're regarding in a certain way, that it is, uh, there's, a, there's a crucial contribution from consciousness, that all that exists apart from man are individual entities with their unique characteristics. Um, but we are able to bring something to table. That is, we're able to look at them from the perspective of omitting measurements and see real similarities that, yes, these things actually share characteristics in different measurements. And so it's we're grasping not an external object that mirrors the abstraction. We're actively, volitionally regarding things as units 
based on certain facts about them, facts that their differences in their characteristics fall within a range. And so this is going to be the source of her new view of objectivity, rooted in her view that consciousness has identity. The identity of man's consciousness is such that we form concepts based on measurement omission. Um, but that's not arbitrary. It's not subjective. It's uh, objective because it's based on certain facts. It's based on a method that is tied to reality. And so I really want to stress the, the way in which um, we're seeing the kind of cash value in the, in the uniqueness of Ayn Rand's view that consciousness has identity. Every other view has basically said that to be aware of reality, um, what's inside our mind has to match or mirror what's outside our mind. And then you get some contingents that say, yeah, that's what our mind does. And then you get others say, no, it doesn't. So it's completely subjective. And Ayn Rand's saying that the former is an error that she calls intrinsicism. It's taking what is only possible through man's mind and uh, projecting it out into reality. And that the alternative is subjectivism. It's the, the false alternative is subjectivism, that no, man's mind is not passively mirroring, passively grasping uh, the facts. Our mind is an active process. It's contributing to cognition. So it's not really cognition. It's not really grasping the facts. And what we see is that objective is a certain relationship. It's our means of knowing, but it's our means of knowing, a means of grasping the facts. So I made this parallel to perception, but I want to uh, really underline that it's just a parallel. Um, it's not the same phenomenon that that on the perceptual level, you can't talk about objective, that um, there is an active process that goes on in order for us to be aware of things on the perceptual level, that consciousness at every level is activity. But from our perspective, the experience of it is passive, that you just open your eyes and you can't go wrong. Um, reality, in effect, hits you across the head. And so the whole issue of objectivity doesn't come up. Objectivity comes up only when there's an issue of free will, only when there's an issue of here's a process that you can undergo and you can undergo it rightly or wrongly. And, and then I'm going to give you advice for how to do it the right way. That doesn't arise in the perceptual level. And in fact, it really doesn't arise at the lowest level of concepts. So first level concepts of entities and then some basic concepts like attributes um, that you directly are aware of similarity, that you perceive similarity. And in fact, by the time we're adults, we've so automatized these things that it is experienced more or less, um, or it's experienced without, uh, as not involving choice, like to regard a computer as a computer, as a member of a group is experienced, you know, in a way that's very tied to our um, to perception that there that but it's at the higher level of abstraction in particular uh, there is still free will involved there particularly when you're forming it but it's mostly like you just direct your attention to a similarity that jumps out at you from reality um, the best cases to have in mind when you're thinking about concepts as objective is higher level concepts where there's definitely uh, you're very aware of I'm ha I have to undergo a certain process. I'm choosing to go undergo a certain process, a certain way of regarding things, and then I can go wrong. And so how can I ensure that I'm going right? And that's why we say that objectivity, even though there is this parallel. So to summarize this point, objectivism rejects the view that we 
passively uh, absorb or perceive abstractions that exist out there in the world apart from man that there's actually that uh, what concepts are our way of looking at concretes all concretes are unique individual there is no abstract essence or uh or universals or universal characteristics all there are are the individuals but there's certain facts about them that allow us to see them as units and that's basically that their characteristics are the same with different measurements and then objectivity is going to give us guidance to say this is how you can actually organize things these are the way you can conceptualize rightly or wrongly and then more broadly this is how you can achieve conceptual knowledge uh how you this is the right way to go about trying to achieve conceptual knowledge and this is the wrong way to go about it one of the most powerful tools we get from objectivism is the ability to rationally assess concepts to say is this the right way to conceptualize things or is this the wrong way and most good thinking is the result not of like being really great at syllogistic reasoning um, or having you know memorized all of the formal and informal fallacies it is uh, really rooted in conceptual clarity and to put that on the inverse one way to think about it is that um, what objectivism gives you the tools to avoid are t the two biggest mistakes that people make in the concepts that they use so the first would be uh, avoiding floating abstractions that is concepts where you don't have a tie to reality where you can't spot clearly what in reality your concept is referring to and then the other is invalid concepts and so we talked a little bit about floating abstractions when we talked about definitions we're going to talk about them more when we get to the issue of reduction later in this chapter um, but for now i want to focus on uh, two kinds of invalid concepts um, which are related package deals and anti-concepts so just generally package deal package deals are grouping together things that don't really go together and anti-concepts are concepts are illegitimate concepts used to destroy legitimate concepts and i want to say there's a couple resources that are really good uh, for understanding these issues um, the place where ayn rand talks about them most at length explicitly is in uh, her article extremism or the art of smearing and there are several other places but that's where you get the most extensive examination of this issue and then uh, two other resources I would recommend so one is on the Yaron Brooks show on July 12th of this year he and Greg Salmieri talked about package deals and anti-concepts and it's truly an excellent discussion and uh, it's really helpful because they're talking about it in today's context with a lot of the um, most important concepts in today's debate examined from this perspective and then um, there's a few courses that Peter Schwartz has given I think one in 2004 one in 2010 2011 uh, and he gets much more into a lot of the, he gives he goes through a lot of examples um, but he gets into much more of the theory and those courses are available for pretty cheap from the Ayn Rand Institute e-store I don't think they're available for free online uh, but uh, those are certainly recommended as well so let's start with a package deal package deals are putting together things that don't belong together based on superficial similarities and saying treat these at the same treat these as the same so you can think about things that differ 
in their nature, in their truth status, in their moral status, and it's putting them together and saying that anything that you learn about some of the units applies to the rest of them. So just kind of like a, this is a really simple example that I use, just so you can see the basic error. Uh, William F. Buckley had this line of, you, you know, take a person who pushes an old lady into the path of a bus and you take somebody who pushes an old lady out of the path of the bus and say, well, those guys are the same because they like to push old ladies around. You can see you're taking this superficial similarity of pushing old ladies around and ignoring a fundamental difference. One is you're saving a life, the other is you're purposefully taking a life. And that's really, in effect, what package deals do. And um, Ayn Rand talks about all sorts of examples, whether it's um, the package deal of economic and political power, uh, selfishness, which uh, I'll say a word about in a second. Today, a, a big one right now is the idea of stakeholders. So not we shouldn't focus on maximizing shareholder value. We need to focus on stakeholder value. And, um, you know, with selfishness, I mean, this is what she regards as one of the worst package deals ever because what we do is we, in effect, group together a Bernie Madoff and a Steve Jobs. Well, why? Because they share a, a superficial similarity, which is, well, they're clearly not walking around sacrificing for others. Um, but it is superficial because one is cr a creator, a producer who is dealing with others through voluntary trade, and the other is a criminal who's destroying and taking from others. And so to say, oh, well, they're not, they're not selflessly sacrificing, so therefore they're the same, that is completely superficial. It ignores enormous differences and, above all, a difference in moral estimate. Another example that um, Greg and Yaron talk about and I think is really useful to have in mind of a package deal is uh, the right and the left. And Greg makes the point of it's a package deal insofar as you're treating those as ideological labels. Because if you're treating them as ideological labels, I mean, take the right. What is fundamentally in common with being anti-immigration, anti-abortion, anti-regulation, uh, pro-gun, pro-religion? There's nothing ideologically that unites those two or th those those different positions uh, and in fact from the objectivist perspective uh, many of them are inconsistent with each other and so um, the only legitimate use of a concept like the right is not as uh, an, a, an ideological label but as a sociological label and so we I think the way that Greg puts it which is helpful to understand is that the right is essentially people who view the Democrats as worse than the Republicans in, in a US context and the left is people who view the you know uh, Republicans as worse than the Democrats and so you can understand that okay there's these factions and groups kind of vying for power and arguing with one another but that to treat that as anything like an ideological label is an enormous package deal and, and, and really undermines uh, your ability to think. So turning now to anti-concepts. Anti-concepts can get really complex, but I think just the main thing to focus on is that they're smears. And Ayn Rand even calls her article, it's extremism or the art of smearing. So if you think what a smear is, just generally, it's when you try to discredit somebody uh, so that you, you and discredit and dismiss them. And what anti-concepts are really trying to do are really get you to um, discredit and dismiss whole issues or ideas. 
And so you can think of, and to, and to dismiss them without argument, it's to take off the table certain arguments. It's, um, you can think of something in you know contemporary context would be the idea of TDS or Trump derangement system, where it's the idea that we don't that it, we don't have to answer any actual criticism of Trump. Certainly not any criticism made in strong moral terms, because that's just TDS. It's it, it's saying that these kinds of criticisms represent a mental disease that you're unhinged, crazy, emotional. So we can just dismiss it from discussion. And um, I mean, Greg very memorably, memorably put it as like using that phrase, TDS, Trump derangement system, is like putting a bullet through your brain. Like that's how destructive it is because you're, you're taking off the table uh, our ability to reason about this sphere of reality. So as you see though, anti-concepts are deliberate. They're, I mean, you can think about it as weapons of war. And in fact, like maybe the best analogy is they're saboteurs. They're going there and trying to take away your weaponry, which is your good concepts, and replace them with something that's completely unusable and that prevents you from thinking rationally about a given issue. And Ayn Rand talks about uh, many of these, whether it's um, polarization, duty, um, simplistic meritocracy, extremism, isolationism, and there's just a whole raft of these things. Now, one issue is, well, how are package deals and anti-concepts related? And they often overlap, that often a package deal will function as an anti-concept, but that there are exceptions. There's some package deals that are, uh, that are not actually going to, um, that are not anti-concepts. Uh, Peter Schwartz in one of his uh, lectures, I think gives the example, like a, a made up example of neck ups. And so it's, you know, earrings, eyeglasses, hats, uh, scarves, everything that would go on the face from the neck up. And you'd say, well, that's just useless. You're grouping together, like, you know, things you learn uh, about hats are not going to be very applicable to things you learn about glasses. Um, but then there's also anti-concepts that are not package deals. And I think Greg gives the example of duty, where it's not that there's a, there's not really a package here. It's just this phony view of moral obligation that's going to wipe out um, reason, values, love, self-esteem. So it's, it, it's a concept that's wiping things out, but not necessarily a package deal. But in most cases, in most cases, it's going to be a package deal that's going to function as an anti-concept. Um, now there are I, even, uh, I think, package deals that are enormously destructive of thinking. So it's not like neck up or encirclist, which is the example that Leonard gave. Um, so if you think about economic and political power is a big package deal where you know, the left will say, oh my gosh, you're worried about the power of the government? Well, what about the power of Silicon Valley? And that what it is, it's an equivocation. So it's a fallacy. It's destructive in your thinking to do that, to equivocate between economic and political power. Um, but it's not, as, as far as I can see, an anti-concept because there's nothing that it's actually wiping out. So uh, there's a lot of overlap, but not total overlap on these issues. So let's talk a little bit about how to identify package deals. And the first thing I'll say is just that this should be a live issue in your mind. You should be in the policy that there's a lot of bad concepts out there. There's a lot of package deals and anti-concepts, and I need to be attuned to looking for them and not just adopting 
new concepts or words uh, that happen to be trendy. And so this is particularly true with any kind of new terminology. And one of the things I learned from Ankar Gatte that I found really helpful is that like new terms, neologisms, particularly in contentious or important moral or political issues, should be guilty until proven innocent. And you can look at that kind of two ways. One is you need to go through the concept formation process, what we talked about in definition, where you say, all right, what are the units? What are their distinctive characteristics? What's the essential? Is there an essential? And this is the, and so it's the last part that I'm really stressing here, which is, you know, we talked about in order to keep our concepts tied to reality, we had to go through that and recreate that process in our mind. But it's possible that there really isn't an essential similarity between the units, that it's a bad concept. And so there's really two questions that you want to have at the forefront of your mind, two related questions. Do these things really belong together? And is this definition naming an essential? So let's take an example of this asking this question, of do these things belong together? And Ayn Rand gives a really good example of this in Extremism or the Art of Smearing, which so that was written in 1964. And she's talking about the injection of this concept during the 64 Republican presidential convention. And, you know, you had a war against the so-called moderates against uh, the Goldwater uh, faction. And they were saying like the Goldwater, this is, they're extremists and we need to be opposed to extremism. And so Iron's question is, okay, well, what are the examples they give of extremism? And they're kind of three prominent ones, the Communist Party, the KKK, and the John Birch Society, which was this conservative organization that went around accusing people like Eisenhower of being, you know, secret communists. And she asked, well, what did these, what do these supposedly have in common? And she said, well, I mean, obviously you could say like a political organization, but that's not what the um, people who are putting over this concept of extremism are talking about. And she says, you know, what they would say is, oh, well, they're all evil. That's their commonality. And she says, okay, well, let's name exactly in what respect they're supposedly evil. So we have the Communist Party that's been responsible for mass slaughter. We have the KKK, which engages in mob violence and lynchings. And then we have the John Birch Society, which maybe they're guilty, I guess, of libel, she says. And it's you're putting them into the same package and saying we need to treat the same mass murder and lynchings and libel. And so by naming in what respect these different examples are supposed to be part of the same concept, it becomes self-evident. These things do not go together at all. And so in asking, do these things belong together? It's you're trying to name in what respect they're supposed to be similar. And if they don't belong together, it will leap out at you once you name it. Now let's take an example of does the definition name an essential similarity? And again, we can take Ayn Rand's analysis of extremism and she starts by saying, okay, well, extreme is, extremism is just built on extreme, right? And, and that's an issue of, you know, the maximum degree of something. And the idea behind extremism is, all right, the maximum degree of something is going to allow us to label something as evil. But then if we just question that for a moment, well, can we really equate extreme health and extreme sickness, extreme intelligence and extreme stupidity, extreme honesty and extreme dishonesty, uh, extreme, you know, courage and extreme um, fearfulness, like you th that 
uh, lumping those together and say, well, well, they're all examples of extreme. You see, no, this is not an essential similarity. It's masking essential differences, that there's a difference between something that's extremely good and extremely bad. And so you see the method here is you're saying, all right, what does treating this as an essential commit me to and does that at all make sense and um and so you can see then there's these two things are related you're trying to get are we grouping things together and to understand if that grouping together is are they essentially similar are they essentially different you can look at it from the perspective of the concretes or the units or you can look at it from the perspective of the definition um but what you're trying to do is articulate the uh are, is, the, is, is there a real similarity here? Are, can we really make sense of the world by applying what we learned from some of the units to all of them? Can we put them in the same category? And for a package deal, you um, very clearly can't once you examine it from that perspective. That what you end up with is this what we talked about before of pushing old ladies around, masking the difference between saving and killing lives. So finally, I want to talk about a little bit about how anti-concepts work, and particularly from one perspective, because there's a lot of complexity to it. But the thing I really want to stress is the way in which anti-concepts are wiping out other concepts. That you can have a package deal that doesn't, that's just unsuccessful. So I, I would think of something like cancel culture. I think you're grouping together a whole bunch of phenomenon, and it's not clear that they belong together. Um, but it's just groping for a way to conceptualize something like how we respond to people who violate tribal dogmas today. And it's trying to name something, and you even see people say, well, look, we don't can't agree on a definition. Nobody seems to be talking about the same thing. And there you just have what I would say is an unsuccessful uh, attempt to conceptualize. But as far as I can tell, it's not wiping out any legitimate concept. Um, I'm open that to I might be wrong about that. But if you contrast that with something like McCarthyism, which is wiping out our ability to think about anti-communism and are communists infiltrating the government and uh, are, you know, they, um, is the Communist Party actually act like doing damage to the United States? No, that's off the table. All you can do is think, oh, here's people making frenzied denunciations. And then um, if you think of it like a concept duty, Ayn Rand says that it wipes out rationality, morality, love, and uh, self-esteem and now you might think well wait a minute we still have those concepts what does it mean that it's a wiping out and what it I, the way i understand it is that what it's doing is it's taking off the table a certain kind of rational consideration uh in a given context it's saying that here's something that like rationally you'd want to consider and think about in a given realm and what the anti-concept is doing is automatizing uh, a way of looking at things that takes that off the table. So let's take the example of Trump derangement system uh, syndrome. Well, whenever you're evaluating a politician, what they do, what they say, what they advocate, like it's really important to think like, are they being rational? Are there real facts to support what they're saying and doing? Is this moral? Is it right? Is it wrong? And that what TDS is doing is saying, no, those considerations are off the table. And it's doing it by supplanting uh, considerations of rationality 
and morality and saying, oh, all we can talk about is um, the, you know, supposedly uh, unhinged way in which the person criticizing Trump is allegedly functioning. And so what it amounts to in practice is that we could treat the, you know, howls of leftists staring at the sky after Trump won exactly the same as the criticisms leveled by George Will of that, well, you don't answer the howls of somebody howling at the sky. You don't answer the arguments that are posed by George Will about, you know, uh, the rationality and morality of Trump. And so you can see the kind of devastation that's waged when you're taking rational considerations off the table. And that's really what it means to say that an anti-concept is destroying legitimate concepts. All right, just to quickly sum up, we have concepts as objective, that they're a product of a certain relationship, uh, that they're a product of a, between the mind and reality. It's a mind that's undergone a volitional process in order to grasp certain facts. Um, and that you need both the element of consciousness and existence, that that is what objective pertains to. And we've seen the way in which Ayn Rand's distinctive conception of objectivity is really rooted or made possible by her grasp of consciousness having identity and insisting that consciousness has identity and that that identity is not a barrier to cognition, but the precondition of cognition, the precondition of awareness. And then we've talked about the way in which invalid concepts, concepts that are formed non-objectively, hamper and destroy our thinking and things that we can do in order to protect ourselves from these. So that's it for this. Tomorrow, or next video rather, we will discuss um, the method of objectivity more broadly and until then, I uh, would love it if you would hit that bell, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and as always, the best way to stay in contact is to sign up for the email list at donswriting.com. Talk next time.